between that. Here we have one of those places. And we're going to be challenged in that very area. Look at it with me, chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we recognize that every one of us has our own set of challenges. Things, Lord, that that in one way or another affront us to challenge us to be different than what you call us to. Temptations, drives, the way we view ourselves, the amount of time we view ourselves. Lord, for all the things that are going on, Lord, and we try to apply that then to our walk with you tonight, transform us. Take us beyond, Lord, a simple reading of your book to interfacing with you, to genuinely fellowshipping with you, to genuinely being with you, and radically, radically experiencing what you have for us tonight. Lord, we recognize sometimes the issue is understanding, and we recognize sometimes the issue really, in all honesty, is is obedience and faith. And I believe tonight you're going to challenge exactly that, our obedience and faith. So please, Lord, before we think of ourselves as heroes of the faith, put us to challenge tonight. I pray you would speak. I pray you would minister. I pray you would love on and profoundly engulf and have your way now, I pray. Bless every person here, I pray, and let us truly hear from you. So empower me with your Holy Spirit, Lord, because I I can't do this on my own. You can do it. So speak fluent us tonight that every one of us would truly hear you and simply hear you simply. So have your way now, we pray. We commit tonight to you. Redeem every second, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your final say. Go ahead, Lauren, shoot up that first slide. I, have to, I don't normally start with a story. But tonight I'm going to start with a little story. And it starts with a picture like this. Once upon a time, I lived in a place called Colorado. I didn't live there long. I was on my way from Chicago to California. I just didn't necessarily know it at the moment. And when I was there, there was this particular highway. It's kind of called Runner's Road. And it was just long and straight forever. It was one of those kind of roads that you could really open it up. And during that time, I bought a car that was, or at least a car, however that works, that was a Subaru. Now, Subarus, at least from my understanding, aren't necessarily known for being sleek 
Man cars. But when I got this car, the speedometer went past 145 miles an hour. Now, I want to remind you, this is way before I am the Christian I am today. And I had learned that for whatever reason, Subaru had nailed this car in such a way, they'd put this thing together in such a way that this thing went really fast, really quick. Didn't necessarily look like it, but it went ridiculously quick. And I can comfortably tell you it goes faster than 145 miles an hour. Because it's amazing how far that needle will go beyond the speedometer. One day, on my way um, to a place that would be at least an hour plus drive to the other side of Runner's Row. It isn't exactly that long when you're driving ridiculous speeds that should kill you. Lo and behold, who pulls next to me but something like this? It's a Porsche. And it is a Porsche with every aftermarket product you could find. The front end kind of was sunken and had one of those cool things that looked like a bull's nose, if that makes any sense. You know, and when it, when it revved, it went like, woof, woof, woof. And it sounded like a dog ready to fight. The back end had one of those spoilers. That's that thing that sticks up. It looks like you can cook burgers on. You know, it had paint all over it that were like, this thing just looked like it had driven right off of some stock car race. And the thing pulls next to me. And we know when that light turns green, we are at the edge of runner's road. And what that means is when the light turns green, it's on. And so here I am in my little... And the guy next to me, and he's kind of, you know, everything about him is sort of Italian. He's sleek. He's got his glasses. He's leaning back like this. You know, he's just smooth, baby. He's just smooth. And he's just looking. He's like, right. And I just know. And there we are. And I'm kind of like, hey, how's it going? Right. And I'm there in my car. And the light turns green. And all I know is I was, I had a stick. So I just popped the clutch, stepped on the gas as quick as I could, popped that thing really hard. And it was like, I, I just remember going, cool! and I was smacked to the back of my headrest. And the car, my car was driving just went, whoa, like that. And I looked back, and there was like Mr. Porsche, Mr. Smooth Porsche. He's gone, Ugh. and the difference was, the funniest part about it is, though, if you would have looked at the two cars, every one of you, not that we're betting type, we don't bet, but you'd have laid money on the red Porsche. But in the end of it all, it didn't matter how many aftermarket products you put on the car. It didn't matter how much you souped it up and made it look fancy or look awesome. In the end of it all, what really, really matters is what's under the bonnet. Isn't that true? See, what you'd learn is that there are some Porsches out there, they're actually made by Volkswagen. And so it isn't like the car really looks great on the outside, but it really doesn't have any beef under the bonnet. Does that make any sense? Now, please hear me, because everything that we have in these five verses is exactly that. See, we live in a stage, we live in a world right now where everything we're taught about is how to get your aftermarket products. Christianity is all about the spoiler and the sunken hood and the fancy paint job and the lame coat and making sure everybody sways at the same time and foams and shakes and screams and barks and whatever else is and make sure that the place itself rocks and you have the best lighting show and man when you play the lasers are popping out and you know and it's sort of like the guy that's going to lead praise he's going to come down off strings you know and he's going to be like this and the angels are going to be behind him and and you need a 60,000 person choir so 
so your body shakes when they sing. I mean, and in the end of it all, we've got all these beautiful aftermarket products, but we've got nothing under the hood. And we wonder why the churches are empty. The churches are empty because the people out there are looking for something real. And the real isn't the aftermarket products. What's real is what's under the bonnet. Does that make sense? In these five verses, that's what we have. What's the next slide? I already forgot where we were going to go with it. Okay, there you go. There is the open road. And you got, okay, next slide. Let's get to this. Listen. Because the particular text where Paul is starting this, in this chapter, starts with when I came to you. And the reason it starts with when I came to you, it starts with when I came to you because that means that Paul must have been somewhere else first. Where was Paul before this? And what was Paul's experience just prior to this that made him say, when I showed up here, I, I, I resolved. It's just Jesus Christ and in Him crucified. And you realize what that is, right? That's what's under the bonnet. As a mechanic, they might not be, unless you're a bodywork kind of guy, as an MOT mechanic, chances are what you're really interested in is the engine. You're less interested in the spinning rims. But unfortunately, we have been so convinced that the spinning rims are what save people in the fancy paint job that most of us, to be honest, would never volunteer to do anything for the Lord or with the Lord because we would feel like we just don't have it. This is the situation for Paul. And so once upon a time, there was a guy who used to kill Christians. That's where this starts. And that's actually a fun place to start because that tells you that this guy wasn't naturally equipped to be a rock superstar for Jesus. And Jesus doesn't look for superstars. He looks for servants. And this particular guy, on a second trip, now we're roughly now in the 50s A.D., will take this trip, and as he travels, he travels from this area here around to the area here that we would call Macedonia. And as he travels through here, he has very similar experience at every one of the places. Philippi, he is arrested and beat up, and, and then he gets out. And he goes from there to Thessalonica, and in Thessalonica, he gets beat up, flees from the town for his life, Runs 10 miles east to Berea. When he gets to Berea, he gets beat up. The people in Thessalonica hate him so bad. This is without cars. They travel the 10 miles and beat him up in the next town just to make sure that they get their point across. And Paul gets beat up again and he flees for his life. So it's like beat up and arrested, beat up, arrested and flee, beat up, arrested and flee. And finally he heads down to Athens. What kind of state do you think Paul is in? My guess is Paul's in pretty bad shape. How many times do you get beat up before it changes your day? How many times do you get persecuted before it changes your ministry? How many times do you have a bad day on something before you just say, forget it, it's over? That shows you, by the way, the depth of your commitment, the strength of your character, and the value of whatever it is that you're holding on to. If a rough day will be it for you, then clearly you're in trouble. As a matter of fact, that's what Scripture says. It says that if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Now understand, when Paul goes to here, 
Paul now is in a place where every time he speaks, what would make you, what would you think? Would you think maybe someone's going to beat me up? And Paul now shows up in a place where the, the historians of the day would say there were more idols than people. And there were a lot of people in Athens. Now, one more quick story to kind of lead you up this, and at least this is kind of how at least I empathize and project the situation. I had the opportunity to speak in Nigeria years ago. We had flown over 24 hours. We had spent over 24 hours of travel time by the time we got there, and we hadn't slept yet. And so we were in pretty bad shape. We weighed out in 37 degree or whatever it was, very, very warm, humid temperatures. We weighed out in the sun at the airport for someone to show up, and two hours later, they finally do. A man who speaks no English and just has a picture of me. I'm with two guys that I'm with. And the two guys that I am with are my prayer covering. They are coming to pray while I, while I speak. We don't even know what we're in for. All we know in the end of it all is we're going to go and share Jesus. So we get, and all of a sudden this guy shows up with this picture, and you might, might imagine everybody in the airport gets a little nervous that we're going to get into this van. They call and they validate everything is solid. And we get in this van with this guy, that's the driver, that's the one who came in, and two guys that are armed drivers, are armed guards. One guy said he's riding shotgun, he was literally riding shotgun. He was riding with a big shotgun sticking out the window. And we proceed to leave then Lagos. And as we leave Lagos, all civilization is left behind. Everything becomes pitch black. And one of the guys that I'm with turns around and looks at me in the van that we're in and he says, they're going to eat us. <laughs> 45 minutes later, as you're in and out of consciousness, you finally pull over and you see this bright light. And this bright light gets bigger and bigger and louder and louder and louder. And there are a thousand people standing in a field jumping up and down to music that was playing. When we finally pull up, a man that we had, that I had only met once, Olishese Obataye, shows up and he says, Brother! And he throws Nigerian mumus at us, you know, the clothing of Nigeria. And, and we're surrounded, the entire van, the entire bus is surrounded by people who have never seen anyone of our color before. And at that point, he wants us to get dressed. And I said, I think they've seen enough of us for right now. Could you send them away so we could get dressed? And out we walk. We walk out to this crickety stage. And the guy hands me a microphone and says, go. That's all I get. So there I am. I'm standing there and I'm about to speak where there's two shop lights. You know, those sort of tin lights that they hang in shops and MOTs and so forth. Those are there and bugs of all kinds of origins are flying from one to the other, deciding which one they like the most. And I'm right in their trajectory. So as I'm just about to begin to speak, I just about begin to speak, just something hits me in the face and falls down to the ground. It looks like it came right out of hell or revelation. I mean, the thing looks like a bat. And when it looks like a bat, it's about this big. It has wings like a bat and a thing that looks like a pencil or like a cigarette, but it's going like a scorpion like this. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. Needless to say... It took my attention for the moment. And I kind of looked over it. It kind of ran into me, which I don't know if I was thankful or not. And it fell over. Now, my guys who are back here that I'm hoping, this is a, this should inspire you to pray, right? Oh, no. They're just staring at the bug. I've never seen a bug like that. That's a, that's a crazy bug. Later, I would learn, about seven years later, I would learn from friends on East, in East Africa, the only ones who have ever known that bug, they're like, oh, not good, bro. Not good, brother. I'm like, what is it? I go, when it does this, what's it doing? He says, laying babies. 
See, if that thing had landed on my neck and stayed there, I'd have grown a second head full of those things. Now, here's the point of it. From that point on, the entire message was multitasking. One eye was watching the group of people in front of me as I shared Jesus. The other eye was spanning for another bug like that. Does that make sense? Now, I didn't get hit with a rock. I got hit with a bug. I got hit by, with a rug. With a rug. <laughs> me and Aladdin. I got hit with a bug once, but it was enough to change the way I did things for the rest of that night. Does that make sense? But imagine you go and stand up to speak, and you got hit in the head with a rock. And then you spoke a little bit more, and you got hit in the head with another rock. How many rocks before your whole new presentation is very mobile? From that point on, you're preaching Jesus like this. I want to tell you about Jesus. Jesus is really good. And he's just, and, and let me tell you what, he died for you, and he died, he died, died. And he, you know, well, how long before you start doing that? The reason I say that is when Paul shows up in Athens, three different places now, he's got nailed. And now he shows up in Athens when everyone's a little bit more smart than that. Now understand, every one of us has sort of a bag of flesh. Little things we can reach into that kind of make us look good in a fleshly environment. We all have things we can default to. Some it's your natural talents. Some it's your physical strength. Some it's your intellect. Some it's your charm, your beauty, whatever it is. For Paul, he was a bright guy who was a natural arguer who had been trained in logic to argue, to debate. That was what was in his bag of flesh. So when Paul shows up in Athens, the hub of that kind of intellect, Paul then is brought to the surface and they ask him about this. Listen to this. And now this is Acts for what it's worth. Acts 17 verse 19. And it says this, and I think that's our next slide, right? Lord? Yes. It says, And they took him and brought him to Areopagus. Now at this point, Paul does not have his accountability with him. No, note that. The two guys that he had been traveling with, he left up in Berea, because the last place, he fled so quickly the church didn't have a chance to get established. So here now, Paul is by himself. And they bring him into Athens, and they bring him to this place where all of these philosophers are. They brought him to Eropagus and said, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. And now Paul has the floor among the brilliant. This is one of those moments when you reach into your bag of flesh and pull out your tricks. The problem is, do you know what your flesh is? They're very, very sorry aftermarket products. Does that make sense? And that does not make the car go any quicker. It just makes you look cooler. So it says then, For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. You just don't find philosophers building hospitals or orphanages. They would rather just talk about it. This is the danger of letting Christianity become simply your philosophy. If all you've got, if all your Christianity is, is a philosophy, you'll, it'll be all talk and no action. Now let me ask you honestly, is it? Is your Christianity all talk and no action? 
Or has it changed your, has he changed your behavior? For all the Athenians and the foreigners that came, that's all they did was nothing but talk. So verse 22 now, Paul stood in the midst of Areopagus and he says, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. Here's our first word for us. Dice, say this, say this with me if you would. Desi, diomonia. Desi, diomonia. Come on now, I know you got more in you than that. Desi, diomonia. Excellent. Desia is the idea of something that's great fear. Diomona is where we get the word demon from. And words, I perceive that you are very fearful of demons. It's kind of the idea. Or we might use the word superstitious. You've watched The Exorcist a couple times. You've watched both carries, the old and the new one. You've, you know, you've, been, you've been raised on Twilight and Harry Potter. And you have a great fear of, the, of magic and, and demons and spooky things. Paul says, that's what I noticed about you. And it's Epimenides who would say there were more idols than people in Athens. For I was passing through and I was considering the objects of your worship. And the word worship here is the word sabaya. And it means something adored. And I found this inscription, an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Agnostos Theos. Now, Epimenides would say that there was at one time a terrible pestilence, a disease that was coming along the crops and the people that hit so hard that they started sacrificing to every god they could find. See, because that was the Greeks. They were very superstitious people. They believed if you could reach the right god, you could get whatever it was to stop. By the way, that's no different in India today. The problem is, in India, you have 300 million gods. And if there's something bad that happens, you start trying to thumble through which God could possibly be causing the trouble. That's the idea here. Well, when this pestilence hit, they offered sacrifices to every local deity they thought that they knew, and they could find none of it it got better. It only seemed to get worse. So they built an altar, and they called that particular altar the altar agnostos, by the way, like agnostic, agnostos theos, to the unknowable God. And the idea of it is, since we, don't, since we don't seem to get any help from any of these other guys, let's just show it out. Any other God that might be out there, please stop this. And the pestilence stopped when they offered a sacrifice on this altar, Agnostus Theos. So now Paul walks through, to, through Athens, and we don't know whether he knows this story or not, but Paul now looks, and as he looks, he goes, you know, I noticed that you have an altar to a God, to the God we don't know. I'd like to speak on his behalf if I could. And it says, um, therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, shall not, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives life to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord and in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from every one of us. Please hear me. 
Paul is not, and I want to challenge you in a moment to look at this particular text again of this message Paul is preaching. And you're going to find there some things that are very vital missing in this message. What Paul is trying to do is quite simple. He's trying to connect with the Athenians, but he's trying to do it in a way that he doesn't offend anyone. Does that make sense? Here's the problem, beloved. Like it or not, the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. And if I could just quote from a bus, the gospel is offensive, get over it. Jesus says in both Matthew 1, uh, 11.6 or Luke 7.23, Blessed is he who was not offended because of me. It is clear that Paul is trying not to offend. And can I just warn you, beloved, in a culture here where we really don't want to offend people, a doctor not wanting to offend you might not tell you you're ill when you're dying, but you want a doctor to tell you the truth. We've got to trust that honesty will always be the best policy. And silence is complicity. In other words, to not speak is to make us part of the problem, not the cure. We are going to offend. Now, I'm not telling you be offensive for offensive sake. I'm saying be true whether it offends or not. The Bible says that the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Do you know what that means? That means, hey, an enemy actually could still look like your best friend. And they could be all full of hugs and kisses. It says, but faithful, and they're actually the other way around first, faithful are the wounds of a friend. A real friend will hurt you in love. No, they won't hurt you because they want to hurt you. They'll tell you the truth, even if it hurts, because they would rather tell you the truth than let you get greater hurt later by lying to you. And I am no friend to you. Hear me. I am no friend to you if I lie to you about that which matters the most. And you're no friend to someone else if you lie about what matters most. Let's be honest. And you're like, but if I do that, I'll lose a friend. I'm like, you are not being a friend unless you tell them the truth. And Paul here, notice, he's, he's going to say some things that he is later going to make clear in the doctrinal letters. He's going to say some things that are clearly opposite of the truth. And here's one of them. He says that these people actually worship this God, even though they don't know him. Now, God does not say that. As a matter of fact, then it says, notice in verse 27, that you would grope and hopefully continue to seek until you find him. The problem is, Paul himself says in Romans 3.11, that nobody seeks after God. And if nobody seeks after God, exactly how are they going to grope and find him? This comes, by the way, from what it's worth, all the way back in Psalm 14.2. And then he says in verse 28, For in him, this is though, this is though he's not far from each of us, for in him we live and we move and we have our being, as some of our own, your own prophets have said, for we, are also his, we also are his offspring. Now do you realize that's a Mormon doctrine? That you're offspring of God? By the way, when he says about the offspring of God, he's quoting from two different guys, from Cleanthes and Aratis. Uh, it's with Aratis and Philomenus, page one, where, by the way, in both cases, you are the offspring of Jove, not the living God. It's a Greek teaching that says you're the offspring of a, of a Greek God. And this is what Paul's trying to do to draw a connection. 
And then listen, this is what the Bible says. In Ephesians 2, 3, it says, we were born children of wrath, not children of God. And like it or not, the Bible does not say every person is a child of God because we are not born first children of God. We are reborn children of God. And we are adopted. And that's the difference from the Mormon. The Mormon says everyone's a God because we're children of God. The Bible says, no, we are all children of wrath, but then adopted to become children of God. But we are not of his gene pool. That's the point, Romans 8.15. And then it says, Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or man's, in man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. Is that true? Did God actually just go, Oh yeah, whatever, sin any way you want to, we'll deal with it later. Is that really what God's done? What we read, by the way, is in Romans 1.20, from since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that man is without excuse. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. Think of all the compromises Paul is doing here just to try to connect with the Athenians. And this is the danger of starting with something else and trying to add Jesus to it. That becomes the problem with anything, beloved is what happens is sooner or later, if you want to try to connect with a culture, but you want to start where they are instead, you're not building a bridge. Building a bridge means you have to start where you are and go from there. Does that make sense? Otherwise, that's not building a bridge. It's building a house for them where they are. There's the problem. So what happens is, well, let's do the Harry Potter series and talk about finding Jesus in it. Well, do you know how many things you have to bend to try to make that happen? But people do that. I don't know how many remember those like the God of the Matrix and there was the, I mean, there, those, those have been out forever, those kind of things. No matter what the movies are, someone, and I, I appreciate what someone's trying to do. The problem is, and what's amazing is there are a whole batch of churches that say, well, this is how we, this is our model for doing things because Paul did it, it must be right. But the problem is, I would remind you, after this, Paul says, then I came to you and I resolved, let's not do that again. That tells me something. That tells me that Paul is, like all of us, is learning on the ministry. And as he's learning, unfortunately, what Paul has that we don't is his actions are being recorded in Scripture. Ours aren't. Aren't you thankful? So when we learn something, we don't actually have to have a whole bunch of, you know, billions of people read it later and go, Oh, Andrew, you got close. Well, I'm glad you finally got there or whatever. Because in the end of it all, praise the Lord that he's not doing that with us. With Paul, we're, that's what we're seeing. And I'm encouraged because what I see is a guy learning how to minister. From the very beginning when Paul started, the moment he got saved, he tried to argue people into the, into the kingdom. That's the words he used. When we read that he debated and he argued with people, but you don't argue people into heaven because if you could argue them in, someone else could argue them out. That's the problem. Paul here is resorting back to that. He's standing there and there are times you know where the pressure's on. And you're like, and he reached into his bag of flesh and he pulled out Mr. Debater. And this is what he came up with. And so listen, and we're, I'm almost done with this and we'll get into our text. And that's why it's only five verses. Because it's that important, beloved. And it says then, truly now God overlooked him, but now he commands every, everywhere for men to repent. And then he says in verse 31, for he's appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all of this by raising him from the dead. And the moment they heard the resurrection from the dead, some mocked. Others said, we'll hear you later on this matter. 
And Paul departed from among them, and however, some men did join them and believe. Some. Not lots, just some. Three classic answers, by the way, in any form of resurrection, to the resurrection. There are the mockers, there are the procrastinators, and there are those that will believe. But the response is very mild on both sides. There's no radical salvation here, and there's no radical persecution. Would that be good for you? But Paul's life has been full throttle up to this point. Do you get that? Now, here's my challenge. You ready? If you have a Bible, turn to that particular text. That, again, is Acts 17. Because in the last verse, in chapter 18, verse 1, it says, After these things, Paul then departed from Athens and he went to Corinth. That's what Paul's talking about in Corinthian letter. You ready? And here are your verses, and this is my quick quiz for you. It starts in verse 19, and you're looking from verse 19 through the end of the chapter. Okay? That's his message. Here's the first Because the question really is, was the gospel really fully preached? You ready? Here's the first question. Can you find anywhere in there Jesus' death and or crucifixion for our sins? It's not there. There's no death. We read resurrection, so you assume someone had to die? But let me remind you, the beginning of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. There's no sins mentioned, is there? Ooh, no sins mentioned, then why, why did Jesus have to die? Well, we don't want to offend people with this sin thing. Well, you should do. Because if you don't tell people what the need is, well, then why is Jesus a Savior at all? Here's the next question, Ready? Is there any mention of forgiveness or grace in this? No. There's no forgiveness. There's no grace. Here's the next one. Ready? Is there any mention of the word love in this text? For God so loved... And here's the hammer just to close the deal. Can you find one mention of the name of Jesus in this text? Now Paul did, before this, mention Jesus. He was preaching Jesus before this point. But now he's brought up with the big brains. And he feels like he has to match brain to brain. Can I just say this, beloved? Please hear me. You don't have to match anything to what the world puts on the table. Bring what's under the bonnet. This is the danger. Oh, the world's into dubstep. Well, then we have to have dubstep worship. Hey, if if that's like the way you think and feel, hey, go for it. But the point is, is that you find a guy that doesn't do that, but he's trying to do that. It's like dubstep by the time he gets it done. And you see those guys and they're like, they call themselves rappers and they're really like a plain white rapper. They're really not a rapper. But they're like, well, we have to reach the kids and we have to rap. Look, at why don't you get true with what God has for you? Because then they're like, well, we'll never compete because look, at they have these great movies with this big budget. Well, it's like, just do the best that God gives you. God is not asking for you to match to the table what they're bringing to the table because you have better And there it becomes the problem. Hey, beloved, listen. There are churches, this is their whole motto. 
don't talk about sin. But if you don't talk about sin, then there's no need for forgiveness. And if there's no need for forgiveness, there's no need to die on the cross. And if there's no need to die on the cross, well, then why does he need to resurrect? And if there's no need to resurrect, well, then why even mention Jesus? And by the time you're done, you've sat and learned how to manage your finances, how to have a better relationship and be a better citizen, but you really haven't learned how to get saved. And Jesus isn't mentioned. You know where it says that some, there's this, in the last days there'll be those who have a form of godliness but deny its power? There'll be those who won't even have a form of godliness. They'll just deny his power. Here's the danger, beloved. That now that we get to our text, we can do that. You see, in the end of it all, I'm going to ask you to exercise your faith. Not reach into your bag of flesh. Because if you really trusted what's under the bonnet, you just step on the gas. Does that make sense? And someone next to you could say, wow, that's such a fancy... That thing is clearly made for racing or whatever. But let me remind you, my God is not limited by science. He's not limited by logic. He's not limited by math. My God's just bigger. How about yours? Imagine if Jenny grabs a a hammer. And as she grabs the hammer, the hammer starts to speak. We would all think, of course, Jenny's off of her nut at that point, but just the same. And it says, I don't know if I'm going to hit that nail straight, Jenny. I don't know if I'm going to hit that. She goes, just be solid. It's my job to hit the nail straight. It's your job to shut up and be solid. Because you're the tool. You're not the swinger. You're not the the craftsman. You're the tool. But if you rely on your own wisdom and your own logic, you become the craftsman and not the tool. Does that make sense? Then it is scary because then you're like, well, what if I do it wrong? Could you imagine the hammer saying that to you? Now, I remind you, this is what Paul just experienced. And then it says in 18.1 of Acts, he says, then he left Athens and he went to Corinth. That was his last experience. And then he got to Corinth. I want to remind you, while Paul's in Corinth, God will say, stop being afraid, Paul. So whatever happened to him up in Macedonia is still lingering. But wouldn't it for you too? Hey, if you got hit with one rock standing out and speaking, would you ever speak again? Some of us won't speak anyways, and none of us and haven't been hit with a rock. Maybe you need to be hit with a rock to speak out to someone. Now look at these five verses with me in chapter 2. And this is my prayer today, sincerely, that we start a revolution in this room. That's my prayer. Listen. And I, brothers, when I came to you, I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom. Here's a great word. The word is uparache. Can you say uparache? Well, that was fun. Try it again. Uparache. The word uper means like uber or super means over. And echo or eche means to hold. It is the word that he uses for excellence. In other words, I did not flaunt or hold over you some form of superiority of speech. I didn't speak over you. I didn't dangle my brilliance. Paul's like, by the time he got to Corinth, he looked and he goes, you know what? This is not about trying to be awesome. This is not about impressing people. This is about ministering to them. 
And if all there is is experts out there, then there will be a very small handful of people who can do the job, right? And you're not one of them. I'm not one of them. But listen, Paul says, when I came, I didn't flaunt any superior speech or wisdom over you. I didn't try to make it look like I'm smart and you're dumb. I'm brilliant because I know the entire Bible inside and out and you don't. And you know what? You'll never understand it because you're not holy like I am. And don't even try to read it because you're too dumb or you're not spiritual enough or all that. That stuff is hogwash and straight out of the pit of hell. We're all to be workmen who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. That's what we need to be. But don't you ever think for a second that you can't be what God called you to be. Because if God called you to be it, he knows how to get you there. He says, when I declared to you the testimony of God, the word testimony material is the word evidence. When I declared to you the evidence of God, for I determined, and that's the beautiful word here. The word determined is the word krino. Could you say krino? That means pass the verdict. He goes, there got a time where Paul on his way from Athens to Corinth, he sat with himself and there was a little judge and jury in his heart. And he looked and he goes, you know what? No more of that. No more trying to look like the world and inch them and massage them into a little bit closer to Jesus. They're going to know there's a choice to be made and I'm going to trust God's tools to do God's work God's ways. So he said, look, I determine, I pass the judgment, I pass the verdict, I am not going to know. And the word know there, remember how there's to know by experience or know by perception? I'm not even going to know by perception. I'm not even going to think about anything but this. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Because that's the two things you did not hear in my message in Athens. They just did not get to hear Jesus, the name above all names, the only name given among men by which we must be saved. And you know this. You could talk to Christians out on the street. How's it going? Awesome. They might even say church, but then you're like, tell me about Jesus. And I like, Jesus. And it's like, the, like, the, like someone pressed the volume button the moment they mentioned his name. Because they're afraid someone's going to think they're a kook. Can I just be honest with you? If you're a Christian, they already think you're a kook. And they have a good right to. You talk to somebody who died 2,000 years ago, 3,000 miles away. Does that not sound weird? And you're in love with a guy, guys, but you're not that way. But you try to explain that to people. And then he died, but he was thinking of you. And then he rose again because he's God in the flesh. And one day he's going to come back from heaven and suck us into the sky. That sounds ridiculous. But it's true. When Noah had to tell people water was going to fall from the sky and you better get in his boat, that sounded ridiculous too. Because water had never fallen from the sky. And people could say, that's so unscientific. So what? It's still the truth. And if it wasn't for people that actually were willing to trust that there's beyond what the limits have been set, we wouldn't be flying in planes or driving in cars. We'd think once we hit 35, our internal organs would explode. Aren't you thankful for people who push the limit? Nonetheless, those when God says something, who knows everything. And here's the problem. If you can do it by your conniving, your brilliance, your ability to argue, your ability to construe that argument, well, then you're in control. And you're in the seat. And you're the craftsman. 
Paul says in verse 3, I was with you in weakness, fear, and much trembling. But after all, if you had an experience like Macedonia, and by the way, that won't be the last time he goes there, would you go back? He does. Wouldn't you be fearful and in much trembling? No wonder why God says, stop being afraid, Paul, I'm with you. See, Paul really did seem traumatized and terrorized by Macedonia, but it didn't stop him from continuing in the ministry. And I'm sure there were moments where he's like, can I just do something less? Because that's what he did in Athens. But after he got done with that, he's like, you know what? I would rather experience that pain and do it right than experience so little and do it wrong. And go, kind of do it right? It's still wrong. My speech and my preaching, oh, Paul says, you know, when I showed up to you, I preached. So don't please, Christians, please don't ever think of preaching as a bad word. Don't tell someone, I'm not going to preach at you because you probably are. And if you're not, you should. If I love you, I'm pre- all preaching means is I'm sharing information with the hopes that it'll, it'll persuade you. That's all preaching is. Every person in the world preaches. The person who tells you not to preach is preaching at you not to preach. Don't tell me that people don't preach. And you go, well, all that means is someone goes on and on and on. It's like, look, if someone loves you, that will go on a little bit, won't they? Let's face it, wouldn't you rather have that than someone give you a pet answer where you know that they're not even listening? Caring takes time. And Paul's like, look, it, I loved you enough to preach. Not just to share information, but to preach. And listen, can I just say today, my intent is not to inform you. My intent is to inspire you. There's a difference. I don't want you just to have more information. This is not an awareness time. This is a time to make you aware and then get you out there to do something. With me, though, because I don't want you to do it without me. This is too fun to do it by with, with me not being a part of it. Look at when I preached to you, I did not use persuasive words. And the words there are words that are the idea of something that's really convicting. And it's like where I really kind of got in your face and tried to convict you. That wasn't my intention. I let the Holy Spirit do that. But listen, my speech and my preaching were in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Some will say, well, my speech and my preaching weren't with persuasive words, but instead I used the demonstration of the Spirit and power. But please hear me. This is what Paul says. Look at verse 4 carefully with me. My speech and my preaching weren't with persuasive words of human wisdom, but my speech and my preaching were in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Do you see the difference? Because otherwise what you'd think is if I could just slay everyone in the spirit, if I could get everyone to yell and bark and slap each other, well, then I've demonstrated the spirit and everyone will get saved. But he says, listen, my speech and my preaching demonstrated the spirit of God and the power of God. Do you get that? Well, how do I demonstrate the power of God and the spirit of God in my preaching? I'll be honest. By stop trying to make it my power to do it, but his power instead to do it. And how do I let God's power do it? Quite simple. I step back and let him work. Now, that doesn't mean, well, then God just speak, 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 speak. What I'm saying is, I actually tell, God says, here's a very simple message. Share this. And you're like, well, can I actually put some aftermarket products on it? And God says, no. Make it, keep it, what's, keep the importance what's under the bonnet. Does that make sense? And what happens is, you ever have God say, look, it, just share this thing with you, with someone. And then you're like, well, hold on, before I get there, can I apologize and say all of these other things and kind of work up and massage? And it's kind of like I'm rubbing the alcohol and stuff. It's like, just get the shot in me. Give me, give me the jab. And they're like, no, 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 really sorry. I mean, you're there for like a half hour and they're like, don't worry, it won't hurt, it won't hurt. You're like, sooner or later, just give me the stinking needle, okay? Do you know what I'm saying? But if I'm going to preach in God's power, 
Because, boy, we sure can make that goofy. And what that means is I scream. I fall on the ground. Hey, you know what? God could do that if he wants to, but it is not required. You're aware of that. Wouldn't it even demonstrate greater power if actually nothing fantastical or dramatic or theatrical happened, but you got nailed in the heart anyways? Wouldn't that be more profound? Wouldn't you go, well, that clearly must be God because it wasn't the guy. That's the way it should be. So listen, as we bring this around now, he says then, listen, it was the demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but rather in the power of God. You see, there's the problem. Where is our faith? Is our faith in our wisdom? Or faith in someone else's wisdom and their ability to communicate? Or is our real faith really in the power of God? If your faith is in the power of God, then let me just say this. Then every one of you are equipped to do God's work. Does that make sense? Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the, not a, but the power unto salvation for those who would believe. The power of God unto salvation. But you're like, the gospel's so simple. Jesus died for your sins according to Scripture, was buried, and he rose again on the third day according to Scripture. But what about, what about, what about? Well, the Lord may cause you to answer some questions, but you don't have to. That gospel is the power of salvation either way. Look, no matter how you paint the bomb, if you light it, it will go off. Does that make sense? So I'm going, to put, I'm going to put you to challenge, and myself too. You've been given tonight one of these, or maybe more, haven't you? Take a look at it for just a second. And this isn't like, check this out, this is my most brilliant work or any of that. Look at, look at what it just says. The idea of it was to just connect it to, to, to Christmas, not to connect it to Harry Potter or to Thor 2 or whatever, or to Twilight. It just says, and by the way, and if you're the kind of does that, start with Jesus and bring in whatever you have to. That way, if it doesn't work, then it doesn't work. Does that make sense? Don't start with that and try to figure out how to squeeze Jesus into it. That becomes the problem. That's what Paul did in Athens. His birth says, his death says, his burial says, his resurrection says. Jesus was born, he died, he was buried, he resurrected. And why? For your sins, for your salvation, for your freedom. Here's my challenge to you. I'd like to challenge you to just take this and pray. We're going to have more of these on Sunday. But we have a stack, I think, still in the back. My challenge is that you give one of these to every person. But notice at the bottom it says, if you'd like to know, I'd love to speak with you more about this. Because it's one thing that, you know, there's guys out there all day handing out things. You know, it's like a free, you know, it's like half off of a tattoo and a free margarita at so-and-so. And you're never going to see the person again. And maybe by the time you're done, you've gotten your two pizzas for 12 pounds or whatever. But this is an invitation for someone to talk to you. This is an invitation for somebody to actually inspect your life and to see if there really is anything different in you than in other people. Because what you're called to be is evidence. Listen, when Jesus talks about the parable of the seed and the sower, he doesn't say that the variable was the way the seed was thrown. Did you notice that? He doesn't say, but you know what? Quessy was having a good day, and on that day, he threw the seed well. 
But on Tuesday, Kwesi had a mediocre day, and he threw the seed not so well, and therefore half of it died. Wednesday was a really bad day for Kwesi, so he threw seed in bad places, and therefore Kwesi didn't get anything. The variable is not how well the seed was thrown. The variable was the condition of the soil it fell in. Does that make sense? And, you th- and we keep thinking, but, but I have to throw it so well. No, see, the reason why it fell in four different soil types is because he threw it everywhere. You get that? So when you're walking on a path and you're just going like this with the seed, some of it's going to fall on the path where you're at. At terrace farming, some of it's going to fall on rocky soil. Some of it will fall among weeds and some of it will fall on good soil, probably where you would probably be aiming. But by the way, notice he doesn't ever rebuke the sower because he threw seed everywhere. He actually doesn't say it was a bad thing at all. The idea is he just threw it and by the time, but see, here's the difference is that as he threw it everywhere, he did get a harvest, 30, 60, or 100-fold. He did get a harvest. I'll tell you who doesn't get a harvest. A sower went out but didn't sow some seed. And no no seed fell on the the path. So the birds starved to death. (laughs) No seed fell among the weeds, so all there was was more weeds. No seed fell among the rocky soil, and so it stayed rocky soil. And no seed fell upon the good soil. And so the good soil sat there and ultimately became soil that was full of weeds too. Because the weeds will throw seed whether you like it or not. Isn't that true? And we are in a generation where we are in danger of people actually not mishearing the word of God, mishearing the gospel, but not hearing the gospel at all. Beloved, if you are a seeder, you know that thing that they push and it just dump seed out? You don't have to be fancy. You just have to be willing. And what I would really love, what would happen? What would happen if the people that you've been praying for or know that you should be praying for but maybe haven't like you would like to got this and said, you know, what happens the first time someone says, I, I didn't know you were a Christian. You're like, Really? And that's the beginning of a conversation now, isn't it? And please don't be afraid if they ask something and you're like, I don't know, because you're not God, so you don't have to know everything. My youngest daughter asks me questions like I'm God. She'll be like, hey, there was a man outside and he was yelling. What was he saying? I was like, who is he? That's a question I'm like, I have to make up something. His name is Larry. He's 64 and he lives down the street and he, uh, is, he sells insurance for a living and it's been a rough day for him because his wife burned his ham, his gammon steak. You know? And she'd be like, Dad, you're making something up. I'm like, what would you expect from a question like that? But I get him all the time from her. And I, I love it because it makes me laugh and it challenges my creativity. But in the end of it all, you kind of look and you're like, well, you really don't expect me to answer that, do you? You know? Dad, I'm about to paint my nails. Exactly how long is it going to take before they dry? 47 and a half minutes, give or take the wind condition for the moment, but it may be 47.36. That tells me we should be praying. Please hear me. And someone comes and they says, who was Cain's wife? Uh, What do you say about the Inquisitions? You're like, I wasn't there. What do you think about the Pope? I'm like, he doesn't invite me to dinner. What would I think about him? You don't invite me to dinner either. What about those crazy, you know, those crazy, you know, perverted priests up in Ireland? Well, don't go near them. 
I think that's pretty wise, don't you think? But then also it sounds like you shouldn't take your kids to the BBC at least 20 years ago either. I mean, the reason I say that is, is it's like, it's amazing. What, it's like Christian pepper spray. Like you start sharing and they're like, and you're like, oh, okay, forget it. Okay, forget it. What about the lost books? I'm like, I don't know. I didn't find them. I have lost books too. Which if you like, you can go over to my house and see if you can find those too. I still can't find my keys. What's that? Yeah, they're probably locked in Christmas paper somewhere. That's probably right. So please hear me in this. If the gospel is the power of salvation, if the bomb blows up and it blows up what you need to blow up, imagine if it blew up love all over people. And they ain't getting it because you ain't lighting the fuse and handing it off. And you're like, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. People will say, well, do you know how this bomb works? You're like, I don't have to know how the bomb works. It bomb, the bomb works. But if someone's going to listen to this message, I'm going to get arrested probably for this as a terrorist. You watch. You get the idea. We're ministering healing. We're not trying to kill people. And we're afraid to hand it out. Stop it, please. Because either your faith is in the power of God or your faith is in your power. You really think your power is going to win that? If the gospel is the power of salvation, that's the only words that are, that are necessary. Does that make sense? Everything else after that is aftermarket products. And then you, then you scream. Um, if, see, I don't have to scream. I have someone else screams for me. Uh, if the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, it's not my job to convict or convince. The Holy Spirit does that. Now, he may use me, but he doesn't have to. And here's the great part. I share Jesus with someone. I give the simple gospel to someone. And they look at me like I'm from outer space. And they walk away. And I'm like, yeah, but the good news is God does not leave him alone just because he walked away from me. And the Holy Spirit's still convicting him. And I've had people come back several years later and go, you know, yeah, you drove me crazy. But then I realized you were right. Okay, one last story, and we'll pray. I really mean it this time, I think. But then Paul said, finally, three different times in Philippians alone. Anyways, um, please hear me. The church in California, we, during our third or fourth service um, on one of those Sunday mornings at that point, a little note gets tucked under, slid under the door with little symbols. It wasn't even words or letters. Someone picked it up and they were like, oh my goodness, it's a curse. We're right in the middle of a message and I didn't even stop. I just kept going or whatever. You know, I didn't even notice it, to be honest, because the room was big enough where I didn't see it happen. And during that time, we had been reaching out to people. We'd been reaching out to the homeless and the people around. And I, did, I was doing a lot of stuff out on the streets at that time, when I, every chance I could get. And we were reaching out to some pretty funky pre- people that were out there, kind of like everyone you saw at a Grateful Dead concert or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Everyone kind of had no shoes and, and did, bathing was kind of optional. And, and they kind of hung out. That was kind of their deal, you know. And, uh, and, and so, like, as we're kind of investing in the years, and it's like, you know, people, we kind of kept it in the filing cabinet. I think one of my secretaries called the police because who knows, you know, whatever. And I was just like, whatever. And they're like, well, what do you think? I'm like, the Bible says no curse will fall against you. So, I mean, it's like no curse given against you will land. So I'm not worried about it. And, you know, whatever. So, so we're praying, we're, you know, and as we continue to reach out, I get to speak to some of these guys out there. And I got to speak to this particular guy who gave himself the name Kiani. Starting with an X, of course, because why house would you spell Keani? And, and this guy's kind of the, he was kind of one of the ringleaders. He's kind of barefoot, long hair. He was definitely a leftist center, a very kind of colorful guy. 
And, and he just started lighting up for Jesus. I mean, it took a while, but after a while, he really caught the Lord and he, he realized how much the Lord loved him. And he was so in it and he was just growing and he was reaching out to the guys with me and he was kind of my wingman. And we'd go out and we'd preach Jesus to people and all this. And finally, one day, he sits down with me and we're actually talking over tea. And he says, hey, I just need to confess something to you. I'm like, sure. And he goes, hey, a long time ago, I was in a really, really dark place, a very dark place. And you came by and you drove me crazy because you wouldn't go and argue with me and you wouldn't fight with me. And I wanted to argue with you and I wanted to debate with you and I wanted all this stuff, but you wouldn't let me do it. And you just kept giving me this darn gospel message over and over and over again. And he goes, I was so angry that I sought some friends that were into witchcraft. And as we were all into this kind of witchcraft thing, we, we got this curse and we wrote it on a piece of paper and we slid it under your door. He was the guy who slid the curse under the door, who is now preaching Jesus, by the way. And the reason I say that is just because you're afraid that someone might go fly off the handle, they may become the next evangelist. That's the point. Now, as we go to prayer, beloved, can I just challenge you and me tonight? To put your trust in God's... Here's the thing. If I put my trust in God's power, my part could be simple. Does that make sense? It could be simple because it's God that has to do the work. So the gospel simply, Jesus died for your sins according to Scripture. He was buried. He rose again on the third day according to Scripture. And then he was seen by a lot of people. Try that. And if people look at you crazy, they probably already think you're crazy anyways. But at least you know that you gave them the power of salvation. Then say, will you receive that gift? If they say, no, you haven't failed, they have. You're still victorious. You're still saved. It isn't like you walked out of there unsaved because they said no. You're still saved. It's whether they are or not is the question. Does that make sense? And I've learned this. You can't have a harvest where seed hasn't been planted. And you just threw seed. Somebody else may go and get the harvest later. But someone's got to start throwing seeds somewhere. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for the blessing of tonight. I thank you for what you've done in this time. I thank you, Lord, for the way you've, that you've spoken to us in these verses, Lord, and challenged us as we've looked even in Paul's situation. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness for where we've been more interested in our execution, in our presentation, than really in what it is we're saying. It's sort of like we're candy-coating nothing and trying to make people think it's sweet. And yet, Lord, in all of that, I just pray tonight, Lord, that you would actually give us a greater faith for your things. Not our own. Thank you that you haven't made it about our ability to argue. Thank you you haven't made it about our ability to present the case or to be socially gifted or beautiful or whatever. But rather, Lord... That we're throwing seed and letting the miracle be not in the thrower, but in the seed like it should be. And so, Lord, with that, I just pray that you would give us a greater faith for your power. Even as Paul said, that when he came to these people, that his speech, he didn't dangle brilliance over them, but rather his speech and his preaching were evidence of the power of your spirit even in the fact that he came trusting that you would do the convicting, not him, and that your gospel was the power of salvation, not him. He's not the power of salvation, nor are we. Thank you, Lord, that we don't save anyone, but we can throw the life ring, we can throw the life raft. 
And it doesn't have to be decorated. It doesn't have to be fancy. For a drowning person to be saved, they just need it to float. Forgive us for trying to decorate something so much that it ceases to float. And so, Lord, I pray tonight that you would give us a greater faith in your work, your way, with your power, by your Spirit, through your Word. Because we've already read in chapter 1 that he who plants and waters were nothing. But you choose the foolish and the weak and the despised and the base and the things that are not. And Lord, if that's the case, then it can't be about the performer, but rather about the Creator. So Lord, now I just pray that tonight you would start putting on our heart people to be praying for that don't know you. And that we would have the guts even to hand something as simple as this so that we don't even feel like we have to argue it. But at least something so that we know that we've given that simple choice to someone. The dignity of them being able to say yes or no to you. And tonight I just pray for every one of us in here, God, that you would get a hold of us. And forgive us, Lord, for where we've bailed out of everything because somehow we just feel like we weren't good enough. And somehow we thought it relied on us. Forgive us for where we've tried to let somebody else do what only you've called us to do. And now, Lord, I just pray that you would tonight, as your word has gone forth and faith comes by hearing and that your word, give us greater faith in your work, your way. And right now, Lord, if there be any in this room who have not accepted your gift or aren't sure, They've heard the gospel ten times tonight or more. And if they weren't sure, it's simply this. Jesus, not anyone else, but God in the flesh, Jesus the Christ, died on the cross for our sins. Theirs too. Was buried and He rose again on the third day just like Scripture promised. And now we have a choice to receive that gift or not. Confessing Him Lord and Savior. So, if there be anyone in this, within the sound of this voice who needs to say yes to Jesus, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, I ask you to say amen. And you're saying, I agree. Let those words be mine. So be it in my life. And here it is. God, I am a sinner. But Jesus, you died for sins. For my sins. So all of my sins could be punished. And though I've done wrong, Jesus, you died for my wrong. And you were buried. And with it, my verdict was buried with you. And you rose again and you offer me new life. And I say yes. I say yes to that offer, making you my Savior and Lord. It's just that simple. And here I am. I don't have to understand anything else to understand this. I need you as my Savior and Lord. So become that in my life now, I pray. Jesus, in your name. If you agree, I ask you to say, Amen. And so, Lord, now I just pray for every person here that you ignite us with that simple truth and get us out where we belong to those, Lord, that you've given us the honor of being, uh, to having such an audience before. And may we treat them with the dignity and the honor they deserve or more than they deserve by giving them the truth of this and laying it before them in Jesus' name. Amen.